So we are continuing our study through the book of Zechariah. We're going to kind of straight into uh, things this morning, but I just want to give you that reminder of the visions that we're going through. So Zechariah is broken down, obviously they have the introduction in chapter 1 and this call to the nation to repent and to be obedient. This is after they've come back from Babylon. And then we get this series of 8 or some say 10, doesn't really matter, but these visions that seemingly Zechariah has in one night. I mean, we've probably all had a restless evening at some time, but this was quite a, quite a night for Zechariah. And we looked last time, really this vision that I suppose gives us the overview of everything that's about to follow. In fact, in one sense, what we're going to see with all of these visions, it's like we've kind of zoomed out and we're looking at the world from space. And then the next vision zooms in a little bit more, a little bit more detail. And the next vision zooms in a little bit more. But as it's zooming in, it's looking to the future, to the, yeah, the days really in which we're living in. And we start to get very specific as we start to move on through these visions. So I don't need to read them all. You can see them on the screen. They'll be on the, the web later. You can look at them again. Um, we're in this uh, second uh, vision the, uh, as we move into, oh, sorry, the, uh, the third vision this morning, uh, the man with the measuring line is what we're going to be looking at and focusing on. We've seen again the man riding on the red horse. It's clearly from the text identified as being the Lord. It's Jesus is standing, and we have this survey, these angels that are sent out around the earth. The Lord is surveying the earth, and this heavenly army has been sent out to see what's going on. And what they find, if you remember what we saw last week, is disturbing because the world is resting. Not in a kind of, oh, isn't it nice kind of way, but in a, uh-oh, they should really not be resting. They should understand the seriousness of the situation. And the world is completely indifferent to Israel's plight. The world has a disregard. In fact, it's worse than that. It's a hatred toward Israel. And we see it even in political arenas. The world does not like Israel. And there's no logical reason for that. The only explanation is that which we find in the Bible, that Israel were called by God. Abraham was chosen. His descendants would be through whom the Messiah would come into the earth, through whom the word of God would be given to the world. And we are told very clearly that Israel have had their eyes blinded because they rejected their Messiah, We're in this period of time now where the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. So we're very grateful for this opportunity. And we have this privilege of being grafted in to this family, as it were. But ultimately, Israel will realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And they will call out to their Messiah when they are in their worst predicament that they've ever faced. We will be worse than the Holocaust. It's a time yet coming. Jeremiah speaks of the time of Jacob's troubles. And Israel will call out to the Lord, and the Lord will return. It's a prerequisite of Jesus coming back. And so, of course, Satan knows that. If Israel can be got rid of, in a sense, you prevent the second coming. Because Jesus said, I'm not coming back until Israel call out. Well, if Israel don't call out, Jesus is not coming back. But, of course, God's plans will be fulfilled. Israel will come to that place. But the problem at the moment, and this is what these uh, this angelic uh, army report back to Jesus, that the world is resting carelessly, without regard, in false security, arrogantly confident, boastful, saying, 
peace, peace when there is no peace. And so we saw the red horseman. Again, Jesus standing in the midst of Israel, uh, and we have that kind of expression in the bottom, but the idea is implied there, and I read this from Chuck last week, Chuck Misler. Uh, he was located in the hollow, a deep place. It was a low time in the nation's history, a period of deep humiliation. It was the times of the Gentiles. And again, we saw this army behind Jesus, these horses that are there, and we talked a little bit about that last time. Um, but then we end with these words of comfort to Israel that the Messiah will come to Jerusalem, that the glory that had departed will return, and that the Lord's house will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That will be the fourth temple. Again, we talked a little bit about the temples last week. Jerusalem's boundaries would be expanded, and that's what we're going to start to see a little bit more of this morning. So each of these visions, as I say, it's like zooming in a little bit more every time to get more clarity. So we've had kind of an overview And then, of course, the God will once again choose Jerusalem. Now, this is really exciting because this is exactly what we're going to see in the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. And we've got numerous references in the New Testament that God will again choose Jerusalem, choose Israel. It will become that place of blessing to the whole earth, and the Messiah himself will rule and reign from Jerusalem. So let's jump into chapter 2. And this again is this, uh, well, I've put the second vision on, I've got that wrong already. It's the third vision because we've already had those first two. Um, but this is the man with the measuring line. Okay, let's read the text. We'll just read it through and then we're going to kind of we'll make a few comments on the way and then I'll really take you through and explain to you what I think this really is looking at. And it's incredible. I lifted up my eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. The first thing to point out here, this is Zechariah that's having the vision. He looks up and he sees a man. He's not seeing an angelic being here. He's seeing a man. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but some think this could be Nehemiah. And certainly in the local context, Nehemiah was very instrumental in this rebuilding of Jerusalem once they'd returned from the captivity in Babylon. But I think it's bigger than that, broader than that, because the scope of these prophecies goes right to the end times, the times in which we're living, and then into the millennial kingdom. So I think this, if it is, in one sense, Nehemiah, it's also a type of something that was to come, or someone who is to come. When do you use a measuring line? Well, in the context, it's quite clear. It's when you're about to build something. You take measure out. It's normally something on the honey-do list. I don't know, men, do you have a honey-do list? Your wife gives you a honey-do list. You've got this honey. Could you do this? Uh, and, and so I've got a honey-do list, and I, I work very hard to make sure it's empty. And then all of a sudden I walk into the kitchen, and there's something else gone up there. You know, and invariably it involves me going and getting my tape measure and tools and things like that. You know, so I get my tool belt on and get everything. You know, so it's what we, we have to do. But this is this is... This situation, this building about to take place, and clearly that's the implication. Verse 2 goes on and says, Then I said, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Now we've already seen that Jerusalem is going to expand. That's one of the things that's come out of the first two visions. And now, seemingly, we're at that point. That Zechariah is being told in his vision that what he's seeing, this man is going to be measuring Jerusalem. So looking at how wide it is, how long it is, and everything else. Just trying to understand. So again, it's getting ready to build, to expand. 
Again, Jerusalem very clearly is the focus here. Verse 3, And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, now that's in the context seemingly Zechariah, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls. Think of the situation. Zechariah's come back from Babylon. They're living in fear of what these neighboring uh, people are going to do to them. They've already had 19 years of frustration where every attempt to try and rebuild the temple was thwarted, either by Persian kings or we read particularly two individuals, Sambalat and Tobiah, uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, give us details of those individuals that caused so many problems. For 19 years they delayed this process until Haggai comes on the scene and we've talked about that. And Haggai stirs the, the people up and they start building. But now we're being told, this is vision, Zacharias being told, you know, Jerusalem is going to be built. But it's not just going to be built in the way that you think at the moment, like, you know, trying to rebuild the walls. I mean, you've only got to read in, in Nehemiah and you see they had, you know, soldiers standing right by the bits of the walls that other people were building. And, and then they, they, they kind of made everybody responsible for building the bit of the wall that was by your own house. So in other words, you had a vested interest in making sure that wall was secure because if somebody broke through, the first place they'd get to was your house. That, that works. But Nehemiah, sorry, sorry, but Zechariah here is being told that Jerusalem is going to be inhabited as towns without walls. What does that tell you? Well, it speaks of a time of peace and prosperity. For the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, notice this is God speaking, for I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire. God is saying they won't need the walls to protect them. I will be their protection. I will be their shield. I'll be unto her a wall of fire round about, and it will be for the glory in the midst of her. What's that reference to? Well, the glory, speaking of the Messiah, who will come again, that Shekinah glory we've already spoken of, will come and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So we know we're still looking yet future for these things. But what we see from this is that the man with the measuring line, when he turns up and starts measuring Jerusalem, that's the trigger for all these other things that are going to follow on afterwards. And it's going to lead to Jerusalem being re-inhabited, and it's going to ultimately lead to the Messiah dwelling in the midst of. Verse 6, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. See what God is doing? He's calling his people back. This is a call to the Jews that are scattered around the world, and particularly in the north, it's saying. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven. Okay, so Israel has been scattered around the world. We know this historically to be true. To the north, south, east, and west, around the world, wherever you go, you will find Jews in almost every nation. Scattered around the world. But God is going to call them back. He says, For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. So again, scattered Israel is going to return from all around the world. And it's called to deliver thyself. The Lord is going to make it possible for the Jews to return to their homeland. For thus says the Lord of hosts, this is that expression, we've talked about that, occurs so many times in this book. It's the Lord of heaven's armies. That's who's on Israel's side. That's who's fighting for them. And that's who fights for us too. After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Okay, so you're getting the, the picture. There's a chronology here that once Israel are brought back into their land, 
we're going to see a judgment upon the nations. And that's exactly what Matthew tells us in Matthew 25. It speaks about all the nations being gathered together as the sheep and the goats and those that have blessed Jesus' brethren will go into that millennial kingdom. Those that have treated Jesus' brethren, the Jews, cruelly, harshly, and so on, they will not go into the millennial kingdom. So after the glory of the me into the nations, which spoiled you for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. It's a term of endearment of affection. That's how God views his people, the Jews, even though they have made so many mistakes, even though they have walked away, they've been disobedient. He loves them. Do you know, as a parent, it doesn't matter what your children do, you never stop loving them. And that's only on a human scale. Imagine God, who has a love that we can't even fathom. It was a love that sent his own son to the cross because he loved you, even though you and I have transgressed and sinned and we're full of iniquity. There's three things, sin being missing the mark, transgression crossing a line, and iniquity really speaks of our own twisted human nature inherited down all the way from Adam. Because of all of that, God says, but I still love you. And we're told in Romans that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, God didn't say, right, get yourself sorted out and when you're clean and tidy, come back. No, it was while we were in an utter mess that he comes and rescues us. Verse 9, for behold, I will shake my hand upon them and they shall be a spoil to their servants and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. This is going to be something that the world will see. So the return of Israel to their land will lead to judgment upon the nations. Verse 10 goes on. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. It's a really clear, bold statement. And once again, and I, I kind of, if I'm using the expression, kick this dog every time I pass it, but replacement theology is so bankrupt. When you come to the Bible, all you find is promise after promise after promise that God has not finished with Israel. God has a clear plan and purpose for them. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. This is after Babylon. This is looking forward to what is still yet to come. The Lord is saying, I will dwell in the midst of you. And of course, that promise that Gabriel gives to Mary, that the child that she was carrying, the Messiah, would sit on the throne of David and will rule over the whole earth. So the return of Israel to their land will also lead to the Messiah coming to dwell in their midst. In Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, another we looked at that a little while ago as we were studying through Hosea, a clear prophecy that Israel have to repent, but when they repent, they will turn to the Lord, he will return and deliver them from their enemies. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. There's going to be, we talk about united nations. I mean, this is, this is the real one. This isn't the, 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 the fake one that, that we have today, where we have this kind of agreement to try and agree. Uh, this is the Lord bringing the world together, and he will be at the center of it, at Jerusalem. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. So it's talking about bringing everybody together under the rulership of the Messiah. But God says, but I will dwell in the midst of thee. There's something very personal and special about that for Israel. And thou shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Again, it's a very personal 
special thing, this relationship that God has with his people. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land. It's very clear, isn't it? It's talking about Judah. It's not talking about the Gentiles or the church. And it gives us the location, the Holy Land. It's talking of Israel. And shall choose Jerusalem again. Notice that God is going to choose Jerusalem again. It clearly tells us there's going to be a long period of time that Jerusalem was not chosen in that sense. God had allowed it to be given over to the Gentiles. But God would choose it again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. How do we understand that? Well, it's like, keep quiet. You've got nothing to say to the world. Okay, so very quickly, this man with a measuring line will come at the appointed time. His coming will be the trigger that will lead to Jerusalem being re-inhabited. Israel will return to their land from around the world. And this will then lead to a time of judgment upon the nations. The Messiah will come to Zion and the nations will be silenced. They'll have nothing to say. Now, when is that appointed time? Remember what all this starts with? What's the trigger? The trigger is the man with the measuring line. The triggers all of these things that are going to follow. This is a really important prophecy. The issue is, of course, to do with the ownership of the promised land. That's really the central focus of this. The God has said, I will again choose Jerusalem. Israel, of course, had been given it but they'd been forced to leave it. Of course, Babylon, first of all, 606, the first wave of Jews taken away from the land with Daniel and his uh, friends. Then in 597, Ezekiel was taken away. 587, then finally, Zedekiah, the last king to sit on the throne of Israel, all taken away into captivity. And the land becomes under Gentile control. And of course, that extends to then Rome. And yes, Israel were for a time able to exist in the land, but that only lasted up until after the return from Babylon, up until 132 AD, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And then by 135 AD, Hadrian got so frustrated with the Jews that he literally plows Jerusalem. And he renames it. The land of Israel renames it Palestina. That's where the name Palestine comes from. There was never a Palestinian people. That's a media-invented myth. There is no such thing as a Palestinian people. In fact, if you just do a little bit of digging, you'll find quite clearly that the Palestinian orchestra was once a Jewish orchestra. The Palestinian Post was a Jewish newspaper. It was purely the name that had been given by Hadrian to the land named after the Philistines who were Israel's enemies. And he did it on purpose just in spite of Israel to say, well, we're going to try and remove every kind of remembrance of Israel from the land. And from that time, of course, the land has changed hands a number of times. There was the Byzantines that followed really on from the Roman Empire. And then there was the Muslim Caliph Umar and then various other Muslim rulers that had rule over the land of Israel. And then finally in 517, the Ottoman Turks, starting with Selim I, took ownership, rule over this land, the land that we call Israel. The world typically refers to the land as Palestine, but I much prefer the term Israel. 
You see on the map there, that was the Roman Empire. And that was then taken over after Jerusalem was destroyed 70 AD and again in 135 or 132 to 135 AD with Hadrian. Jews were forced to, to flee the land. And that then leads on to the Byzantine Empire covering a very kind of similar uh, area, slightly smaller scale than the Roman Empire, of course. And that is then followed by this Islamic Ottoman Empire. 517 again, it began and their kind of uh, rule ended in 1918 at the end of the First World War for interesting reasons. But there are some really interesting things that play into all of this. There is some rules regarding the land that God gives in his word. Leviticus 25, we read this. The Lord spoke unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord, Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. It's a very simple rule. God says you're to work your land for six years, but the seventh year you used to let it rest. It's great for the soil, by the way, in doing that. All the nutrients return and everything else. God's not stupid. These are God never gives a rule just for the sake of it. There's always a reason for the rules that God gives, even in the Torah. And yes, we're not under the law, but you know what? You want to read that and understand what God is saying because there's some really important things that are communicated to us through the laws that God gives. But it was failure to obey this that had led to the exile in Babylon. See, God says, you owe me 70 years for all the years you didn't allow the land to have its rest. So God says, I'm going to take you out of the land for 70 years. That's what led to the Babylonian captivity. But there's another rule regarding the land. This is the same passage of Scripture in Leviticus 25. And thou shalt number seven, seven Sabbaths of years... Unto thee seven times seven years. And the space of seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year. And notice some specific things are told to them here. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be a jubilee unto you. And you shall return every man unto his possession. And you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee uh, shall that fiftieth year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself. And it nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. In the fiftieth, sorry, in the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. Notice one of the, the key tenets of the jubilee was if you had lost your land or it had been sold, you would return to it. We have a great example of this in the book of Ruth. Ruth had forfeited her land, or they moved away and they'd lost their land. But they come back into Israel. And they're able to take possession of their land. Again, God had made it very clear that the land was never to be bought and sold. If somebody else took possession of it, it would only be on a temporary basis. Because it was God's land. But the 50th year was to be special. It was to be a time when everyone would return to their possession. They would get their land back. 
And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another according to the number of years after the jubilee thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the fruits he shall sell unto thee. Some very simple rules. So in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, the land would return to its rightful owner. That which had been lost or sold would be returned and restored. The present owner would be required to sell the land back to the rightful owner. That's the last bit we looked about fruits. If, if they had something growing in the land, they would have the right to, to claim what they owed or what they were owed in terms of the produce. So there's this transaction taking place. The land goes back to the rightful owner. And somebody would be paying for whatever uh, was in that land or so on. Now, let me ask you a question. Can we really expect this ancient land rule that God gave in the Torah to apply today? Well, let me remind you that God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's laws and rules never change. When was the last transference of the land of Israel? I've already said there was a number of people that kind of took ownership of that land through history. When was the last one that took place? Well, the last one, as I mentioned, was in 1517 with the Ottoman Turks. They took ownership of the land. Now, according to the law of Jubilee, after 50 years, the land should then return to its original owner. And yet nothing happened in 1567, which would have been 50 years later. But I want to remind you there's another rule that God gives in Leviticus 28. And we've already seen this apply it's fascinating. It's in Leviticus 26, we read this, uh, and if you will not be reformed by me by these things, God is speaking of, I will bring judgment upon you, but if you don't change after these things, but you walk contrary unto me, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. It's a really clear, simple rule that God gives. We've already seen it applied. It applies in a fascinating way that, that we Mentioned before, uh, we looked at a few uh, sessions back, uh, the prophecy in Ezekiel. But this rule of seven times more punishment for a failure to return and obey. Well, rather than a single jubilee, 50 years, we should be looking for the seventh jubilee. In other words, seven times. We use that Leviticus principle, that seven times principle, which gives us 350 years. So it would go from the last transference of the land. And that would take us to, seemingly, this appointed time at which the land should be transferred back to its original owner. And that takes us, if you go from that 1517 date, you look at 350 years, that's seven times the 50, it takes us to 1867. And why is that significant? Jonathan Kahn, in one of his books called The Oracle, says this, In the Jubilee, the connection between the land and its owner is restored. Up until then, the original owner has no right concerning the land. He can't even walk on it without the permission of one now occupying it. But when the Jubilee comes, the owner can walk again on his land, farm it, build on it, and dwell in it. The barriers are removed. The owner's connection to the land and the land's connection to its owners are reaffirmed and restored. However, we've already noted that the Ottoman Turks had possession of the land at this time, and they were not about to relinquish their claim on the land. But God doesn't work according to man's dictates. God has set laws in motion that no man can prevent or frustrate. See, God knows the end from the beginning. 
And he will bring to pass in his time, according to his divine plan and pleasure, whatever he wants to do. Now, bizarrely, this journey that we're about to look at begins with a missing star. In the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, there was a conflict that arose between the Greek Orthodox and the Latin clergy. They kind of oversaw the sanctuary and stuff. And it involved a metal star that mysteriously disappeared. And the Russian government sided with the Orthodox clergy and the Ottoman Empire, along with France, Britain and Sardinia, sided with the Latin clergy. It was a crazy thing to start what became a huge international incident. And the conflict eventually led to the Crimean War. Now, there were other factors in play, but certainly from a political point of view, the Russians and the the British and the French government use this as an opportunity. And it led to, as I say, the Crimea War. But that war would turn up, prove to be a turning point for the Ottoman Empire. Because in the course of the conflict, the Ottoman Empire would enter into massive loans with its European creditors. And the first of several that would then lead to financial disaster and bankruptcy for the Ottoman Empire. So two years after the end of the Crimean War, the Sultan at the time enacted what was referred to as the Ottoman Land Code. So now all land had to be registered so it could be taxed and so they could raise money. And it would open up the door for this large-scale buying and selling of Ottoman land. You've already seen on the map that it was a large area. But it included the land of Israel. So this star going missing leads to this Crimean War. This whole thing then causes this massive debt for the Ottoman Empire, which causes them to find ways to raise money, and it causes them to start selling the land, including the land of Israel. But the Jews were scattered around the world, and they were considered foreigners, and so they weren't, wouldn't be allowed to purchase land. But, as we've already seen, that the law of Jubilee states that the land must be transferred back to its original owner in the Jubilee. So it's got to come about one way or another. Well, this attempt to raise these funds didn't work for the Ottoman Empire. It didn't solve the financial problems. So they then opened, they did something unprecedented, and they opened this up to anybody to buy land. So it was nine years after the first land code, the empire enacted a new law, which was again the new Ottoman land code, and the land could now be purchased by a foreigner. That meant that the land of Israel for the first time in almost, well, in just over 1,500 years, no, coming up to 1,800 years, could be purchased by the Jews legitimately. And with the Jubilee, remember what happens? Those who occupy the land must release it. They must relinquish it. What did God do? He arranged a situation so that they were forced to sell the land, whether they wanted to or not. And the effect of this law would be the, almost unnoticeable at first, but in time it would change the history of the Middle East and, of course, the modern world in which we live because the Jews would start purchasing their ancient land. At times they did it through third parties that were unknown to the Ottoman authorities, but either way they started to take ownership. And when the authorities realized, it was too late. They tried to stop it, but it was too late. They tried to place a ban on Jews buying land in, as they referred to, Palestine and Israel. But Jews simply had others buy the land for them. And either way, they started to retain, take ownership. And the release of the land would continue nonetheless and would prepare the way for the return of exiles, the Jews that have been scattered around the world. And it only happened because of this land code. And that only happened because of the debt. The debt only happened because of the European loans. And that only happened because of the Crimean War. 
And that all happened because of this missing star and the debate that ensued because of that. All to bring to pass God's divine plan to restore the land of Israel. Remember what God said? I will choose Jerusalem. See, all these events tie into this mystery of the Jubilee, this law that God had given us in his Torah. And the mystery doesn't cause the events, but all things work together to bring about God's purposes. When did the release of this land begin? In 1867, 350 years after that last transference of the land. That seventh Jubilee. And remember, God said, I will choose Jerusalem. Jonathan Kahn makes this comment. He says, the Jewish people must come back from their exile to the land, so then the land must be made ready for their return. So in accordance with the ancient ordinance, the Ottoman Empire begins to release the land, and one occupying the land must release it. It's exactly what took place. Now, the releasing of the land was not the only divinely appointed event to take place in the year 1867, this year of the seventh jubilee. There also come a stranger to the land, prophesied by Moses three and a half thousand years before the event. And there would also come, and this is what we're really interested in this morning, a come a man with a measuring line. So I want to take you through these two things. This is history, but it's fascinating. Bear in mind, this was told by, foretold by Zechariah some 500 years or so before Jesus came, some two and a half thousand years ago from where we are today. And all of these events all took place in the same year, 1867, the 7th Jubilee. That's the 7th Jubilee after the last transference of the land. And again, all in accordance with God's divine plan, all in keeping with his promise to choose Jerusalem, as Zacharias has been telling us. And all of this will be the catalyst for everything that is going to follow in the subsequent visions that we'll look at over coming weeks. This prophecy then in Deuteronomy 29 speaks of a stranger that shall come from a far land. And shall say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which uh, which the Lord has laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adamar and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. What a specific prophecy. So Moses gives this prophecy of a stranger that's going to come from the ends of the earth, it's a faraway land. When he enters the land, he's going to bear witness of its barrenness, its devastation and desolation. The Hebrew word that speaks of the stranger is nakari, and it's a singular, it's an individual. It's not speaking of collectively lots of people. Now, no doubt many people visited the land of Israel, and they saw the mess it was in at, at that point. But this is the prophecy speaks of an individual, some specific person to come. The prophecy specifies also the time frame. It speaks, the word is acharoni, and the idea is the latter generation, not just one in the future, but the last. It speaks of the end times, effectively. So according to Moses, this stranger is going to come to the land before another specific event. In fact, it would be a precursor to the regathering of the people to the land. This is exactly what Moses says. It's the last speech, if you like, in Deuteronomy that Moses gives before he's called home. So again, the year 1867, a stranger did indeed come to the land of Israel from America. 
He boarded a steamship on his voyage, took him around the world, and it ended up in Israel. Specifically, ended up in the city of Jerusalem. But the individual in question just happened to be a journalist, so he kept a notebook of his journey. The stranger was none other than Mark Twain. Some of you may be familiar with him, known as the father of American literature and author of books like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and so on. He was not a believer in that sense. He he seems to have had a a belief in the fact that there was a God, but certainly not a Christian and no desire to fulfill any prophecies. Upon arriving in the land, though, he wrote this. Rags, wretchedness, poverty and dirt, lepers, cripples, the blind, to see the number of maimed, malformed and diseased humanity that throng the holy places. According to Moses, the stranger would say, the whole land is brimstone and salt. And Twain would bear witness to this. He would say, all desolate and unpeopled, miles of desolate country. The far-reaching desolation, the waste of a limitless desolation, using the very wording effectively translated from the Hebrew into the English, but the very wording that Moses had recorded. Now again, according to the prophecy, the stranger, when he comes, would say, all the land is a burning waste. Or as another translation puts it, your land has become a scorching desert. Twain would write, it's a scorching, arid, repulsive solitude. Such roasting heat, such as oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death. So Mark Twain's writing exactly what Moses said that this stranger who had come from a far away land would write and bear witness to. Now the prophecy in Deuteronomy says that the land would become devoid of anyone to sow it, and Mark Twain wrote, all is, uh, all its land is unsown. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. These unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness that never, never, never do shake the glare from their harsh outlines. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. Do you know what? If it hadn't been for Mark Twain writing some of these things down, we would have trouble believing that the land of Israel was like that. Because for some of us who have been to Israel, it's beautiful. I just remember driving past fields and fields full of bananas growing and oranges growing. The fruit and the vegetation is just overwhelming. They're one of the largest fruit producers on the earth. If it wasn't for this witness, we would have trouble thinking, really, was it that bad? Again, Moses also prophesied that the land would not bring forth or produce, and or not, uh, nor does it bear, is what Moses said. And the Hebrew word samak is used there, which specifically refers to sprouting. And Twain again speaks about the land's inability to sprout vegetables. He says this, The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun, this blistering, naked, treeless land. Again, if you've been to Israel, you know it's full of trees now. The prophecy states that the stranger who comes will specifically speak of grass, or rather the absence of it, that no grass grows in it. Or one translation puts it, not even a blade of grass. Twain, in his notebook, almost quotes scripture word for word here, because he says, no sprig of grass is visible. Now, as I said already, Mark Twain was a skeptic. Certainly no intention of trying to fulfill a three and a half thousand year old biblical prophecy. And yet, in addition to these things that we've already noted, Scripture foretells that in the day 
of the stranger, it will be said, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring it uh, all the curses that are written in this book. That was what Moses recorded in Deuteronomy. Now, certainly from Twain's perspective, he was not looking at this from a biblical or Christian perspective whatsoever, but he wrote this, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes, over it broods the spell of a curse. Well, that's what Moses said. Palestine is desolate and unlovely, and why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? This is somebody that's not a believer. And he says, this land has been cursed by God. Mark Twain's words appeared in articles across America and beyond, and they became a witness to his generation, and of course beyond, and he obviously thus fulfilled this prophecy. But there's the timing, because it was right on cue. It was when the law, the land was at its most desolate that these events uh, would take place. It's kind of the prophetic key to set the stage for the redemption of the land and the return of the exiles, the children of Israel. But there was another prophecy that was to be fulfilled before they could return. And just after Israel's captivity from Babylon, Zechariah, as we've been looking at, records this vision of the man with the measuring line. Now, again, the whole idea of this mystery of these jubilees, the way these things play out according to the laws that God has given. This is Jonathan Kahn quoting it, or quote, I'm quoting, he says, what must happen after the stranger's journey? The Jewish people must come back from their exile to the land. So then the land must be made ready for their return. So in accordance with ancient ordinance, the Ottoman Empire begins to release the land and one occupying the land must release it. The stranger's journey began on June the 8th, 1867. The release began on June the 10th, 1867. So of all the years and of all the days in human history, the relinquishing of the land begins two days after the stranger's journey begins. So that's why after 2,000 years, everything began at that particular year. That's why the stranger had to undertake his journey in that particular year. That's why the land had to be measured out, as we're going to go see in a second, in that particular year. That's why the ancient city that had been laying in the dust for 2,000 years had to be found that particular year. We're going to see that in a second. And that's why the land had to be released from its present owners at that exact time. And again, it all happened in 1867 because that was the year of the seventh jubilee from that last transference. It was the year of measuring, of transferring, of uncovering, of relinquishing and release. It all happened in that year of jubilee, that seventh jubilee, the complete jubilee. Seven, of course, numerically in the Bible always seems to denote completeness. Jonathan Carner again says this, the jubilee represents the setting in motion of God's purposes. It sets the stage, it inaugurates the course, it sets in motion the train of events that must take place in the coming period, the time until the next Jubilee. So then what took place in the Jubilee of 1867 would set in motion a train of events, a train of prophetic purposes that with the passage of time would become increasingly manifest. And we've seen this. Again, Zechariah chapter 2, I raised my eyes and looked to behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Where are you going, was the question. He said to measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what is its length. So just as a builder, as we said at the start, uses a measuring line when he's planning to build to prepare the foundations, so God did this with Israel. Not just in Nehemiah's day, but in recent times too. 
Again, what happens when you're about to take possession of a piece of land or a property? Well, typically a survey has to be completed. Again, reaching from John the Carney says, the land must be defined or redefined. Its length, its breadth, its borders, parameters. And if there's no existing survey, then a survey must be made. The land must be defined, mapped out, measured, and so the measuring line. So in the days of Zechariah, when the Jewish people were returning to the land, the man with the measuring line comes to the city in a vision. And his appearance is a sign of what is yet to take place. It happened in the ancient world, and so too it would happen again in the modern. The ancient sign would again manifest in the world in modern times. The man with the measuring line would again come to Jerusalem, and his appearance would be a sign of what was yet to come. The name of the man is Charles Warren. He was the former head of the Metropolitan Police. He served as an officer in the British Army and a member of the Royal Engineers. And he picked up a lot of skills in doing the things that he'd done, which were invaluable for what he was later to do, because he became recruited by the Palestine Exploration Fund. He was sent to Israel on a mission to survey and map out Jerusalem, literally to measure the holy city. Now, again, that the land at that time was under the control of the Ottoman Turks. They were very suspicious of the activities, so he has to be very careful in the way he went about this. But again, uh, Warren's work would constitute the first extensive evacuation of biblical Jerusalem, the first extensive measuring of the biblical foundations of the Temple Mount and of its city itself, of the city itself. It would usher in a new age of biblical archaeology. Again, remember. According to the Jubilee, that which was lost must be restored. Now, the boundaries of the land that had been given by God to Moses, the inheritance allotted to the children of Israel, had long since been forgotten. But now they were being rediscovered. Israel's connection with the land was being reestablished. And his mission wasn't just to survey Jerusalem, as it was at that particular time, but as it once was to measure its ancient parameters, the boundaries of ancient Jerusalem, the biblical city, to locate its ancient walls and borders, to uncover its foundations, to restore that which has been lost. Anybody that's been to Israel will know. You can go down, you you get a a trip, and you can go down below the street level, and you can see it's it's staggering. You've got layers and layers and layers of civilization that's been there, that's, that's now been buried. You can't see it from the surface. I mean, it's almost like a city underneath what you see on the surface. And Charles Warren was the individual that really set all of this in motion. In order to do what he did, he had to dig through centuries of ruins to get to the city's biblical foundations. Now, again, Jonathan Kahn says, In the Jubilee, the connection between the land and its original owner is restored. And so the consequences of Warren's work were to restore and strengthen the long-lost connection of the Jewish people to the land. And with every restored connection, the idea that the Jewish people, after almost 2,000 years, might somehow return to their homeland, began to move one step out of the realm of fantasy. After nearly 2,000 years of exile, the man with the measuring line reappeared in Jerusalem as a sign that God was about to bring about a restoration A measuring line is used when one is about to build something. So then the reappearance of the man with the measuring line in the person of Charles Warren was a sign that God was about to act, to move again, to build something, to rebuild that which once was and had fallen, the nation of Israel. 
And when else do you use a measuring line? When there's about to be transference of land. So when the man with the measuring line appeared in Jerusalem, it was a sign that the land was going to be transferred back to the original owner. The land was being prepared for the return. So it was in ancient times when the prophet Zechariah revealed the meaning of the man with the measuring line. The measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So when the Jewish people lost their homeland and their holy city in the first century, the Romans tried to erase every connection between the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Jerusalem became a pagan city. It was renamed Alina Capitolona. And we said already that they renamed the land Palestina, to, again, in, in reference to the Philistines. There's a real slur against Israel. And that erasing was so successful that for the most part of 2,000 years, the land of Israel would simply be known as Palestine. And today, most people refer to it as such. The Jews were even banned from setting foot into their holy city. Again, Jonathan Carr says, so the owner was cut off from his land, and the other powers who would follow the Romans in occupying the land and the city would do similarly, obscuring the connection of the land to its people. But when the Jubilee comes, the connection between the owner and the land is restored. And that which was lost is regained. So Charles Warren, again, this man with the measuring line, started to map out Jerusalem. He had to dig it up in order to do so. He came with more than just survey equipment. He came with shovels and pickaxes and all the tools he needed. And he uncovered the walls of the ancient city, the ancient gates and the chambers under the ground. He uncovered what was hidden under the Temple Mount. But it was something else. Something he didn't plan on, something that would stumble, he would stumble across, that would end up being his most dramatic discovery. It happened while he was crawling through one of Jerusalem's rock chambers with his assistant. He stumbled upon a shaft. That shaft would lead to the discovery of an ancient city, a city hidden in the dust for 2,000 years. Everybody thought they knew where Jerusalem was. But that was what was now. What had been lost was the biblical city of Jerusalem that truly connected it to the Jewish people, to David, to the time of David. For ages, everyone thought the biblical city was inside the walls we see today. And some of it was, but the original city, the biblical core, was outside of the gates that we know today. And Charles Warren found it. He literally uncovered the core of the biblical city of Jerusalem that had lain hidden in the ground for the best part of 2,000 years. And it was the city of David and Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that had been lost. Jonathan Kahn says this, In the mystery of the Jubilee, what has to take place? That which is lost must be found. And the land must be restored to its original owner. So the Jerusalem that was lost was found again. And this marked the beginning of the restoration of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. And according to the mystery of the Jubilee, the original connection between the owner and the land, biblical Jerusalem, and the Jewish people was renewed. The shaft that Warren discovered links up with Jerusalem's ancient water system. And why is that significant? Well, if you think back into the Old Testament, you may remember that when David captured Jerusalem for the first time, And by the way, let me just say that Jerusalem had been a place where priests and kings serving Adonai, Jehovah, had ruled and reigned for a period of a thousand years. There's sometimes a misconnection. People think that David 
stole Jerusalem from the Jebusites. No, it was already God's city from shortly after the time of the flood. We have Melchizedek, who was a priest of God. He was a, um, a king and a priest, in the type of Jesus. Bill Cooper, in his study book on Genesis, goes through and highlights that there had been a series of kings and priests ruling and reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Just, just, just by chance. It's the forerunner of the, of the millennial reign of Jesus. So Jerusalem was already God's place. But the Jebusites had got in there. But when David comes and recaptures it from the Jebusites, they took possession of it by climbing up this ancient water system. So the land was first came into the possession of the Jews, if you like, by this water system. And how is it now being rediscovered? In exactly the same way. That connection restored again. 1867 was the year that that took place, that year of that seventh jubilee. And again, read from Jonathan Carney, says, So Jerusalem is hidden in the earth for 2,000 years, and of all the years to begin emerging, it happens in 1867, the same year everything else happens. Remember the prophecy, the stranger comes to the land, and then what happens? The return, the regathering. The land was being readied, and the discovery was in the autumn of 1867. Why is that significant? Because it was in the autumn of 1867 that the stranger came to the land and to the city and dwelt in the same dwelling place as Warren. Charles Warren, as we said, would be called the pioneer of Jerusalem archaeology, and again, lay that foundation for uncovering, and just again, get that connection between the people, measuring out Jerusalem, mapping it out. But it also opened the door for a, a greater mission. The next decade would see the mapping out of the entire land. A survey would be done from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, regaining again and redefining the borders of the land as had been given in the Bible. It was all measured and mapped out, and they discovered long-lost places and sites. Israel's connection with the land was being strengthened almost on a daily basis. And with every discovery, the Jewish people's right to the land was being renewed. Now, all this, in turn, would be part of the building of momentum for this greater restoration that would take place in the following century. Zechariah's prophecy foretells the man with the measuring line. It wasn't that it was just there to measure Jerusalem, but to give a prophetic word. Now, this is fascinating. This, again, is what we're looking at in Zechariah, this very portion that we started with this morning. This word, this prophecy that the man with the measuring line would give would concern the restoration of Jerusalem. It would be a call to the exiles of Israel to return to the land and to the blessings that would await them there. We read that earlier. So after measuring Jerusalem and uncovering these ancient pathways and so on, Charles Warren returns to England. But he would be led to write down a vision concerning the land and its future. Now this is way before 1948 and the Jews returning home and all those things. But Warren was a believer. Again, it wasn't only a vision, but a specific plan on how the vision could come to fruition. And this was written down and written as, recorded as the land of promise. This is something that Charles Warren wrote. Again, just keep in mind the state of the land when Warren penned this. Remember what we've seen already from what had been written down by the words of the stranger. The land was just barren and grassless. It was a desolation. And that makes what he wrote all the more prophetic and stunning. 
He wrote that the debt incurred by the Ottoman Empire could be used to bring about the return of Jewish people to the land. He saw it immediately. He envisioned that the Jewish people, again, learning how to farm the land. He believed that the land could be watered and the planting of trees could change the land's ecosystem. We look back on that. That's history. We know it's happened. He was looking forward and seeing the possibilities. The desert, he wrote, could be made to blossom. Well, that's exactly what Ezekiel and other prophets said would happen. And Warren is saying, we're on the, the brink of this happening. We read this from Jonathan Carney. He said, when Twain could barely see how the land could support the most meager of populations, Warren wrote of a future where the land could accommodate millions of Jewish people. And yet, even with such numbers, he believed that the new Jewish nation could attain a standard of living equal to that of the most advanced nations. With the return of the Jewish people and the blessings of God, based upon the prophecy of Zechariah, okay, what we're looking at, the land known to the world as Palestine, could again become the land flowing with milk and honey, as in the days of the Bible. Warren's vision was amazingly prophetic, and in the year and decades that followed, it would come to pass. Warren knew that the biblical prophecies of Israel's rebirth, and it was these prophecies that gave him the confidence to envision what seemed otherwise unimaginable. Just let me pause and make one comment there. There are a number of people in Warren's time and and even before that who did not give up on the truth of God's word, the promises of God restoring Israel to the land. The majority of the church had gone down the line with the Roman Catholic Church and said God's finished with Israel. And they rejected all all these promises. People like Warren took God's word seriously. And there were a number of others that did so. But in so doing, he would pen what is considered the first detailed vision and plan for the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel. Just a couple of final quotes from Jonathan Carney. He said, The Ottoman land code of 1867 was set in motion a series of events that would lead to Israel's restoration. By the early 20th century, large tracts of the land had been purchased for the return of the Jewish people. When Twain and Warren came to Jerusalem in 1867, the Jewish people constituted a minority in that city. But within just a few years, they had become the majority. Then just three years after Twain's visit and one year after the publishing of his book uh, came the founding of Mikvah Yisrael. Mikvah Yisrael was the first school established to teach Jewish people how to farm the land. It was the first time in nearly 2,000 years that Jewish people were being taught how to sow and reap the promised land, the first sign of redemption that would transform the country. Everything that Zechariah prophesied came to pass. Everything that, to this point, should have come to pass has come to pass. And we've started this journey. Over the coming weeks, we'll look at the other visions And we'll see how Israel did indeed return to the land. They returned in unbelief. But the promises of all that is yet to come. There'll be details about the tribulation. There'll be details about the return of Jesus and the establishment of the millennial kingdom, all as we build from this point in Zechariah. I don't know about you, I find that utterly staggering that we have in our possession a book that details future events thousands of years before they take place with incredible precision. We have the wonder and the beauty of history to be able to look back and go, wow, God's word is true. And you know, if God's word is true in regard to all of these things, God's word is true in regard to everything it says about your life and your need 
and your privilege to trust him. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to review these things. And Lord, we do step back in awe at your word that truly does tell the end from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can frustrate your plans, be it some secular power, be it some other religious group, be it whatever, Lord, nothing can frustrate the plans that you have for your people. Your purposes will be fulfilled. Your promises will be kept. So we thank you, Lord, that we serve a God who is faithful. We serve a God who is gracious, a God who is compassionate. Oh, and Lord, it's so wonderful to see these things because we recognize that if it's true in a larger scale, then it's true in our own lives too, that you are a good and gracious and compassionate God. You're a God of restoration. You're a God of hope. We just thank you for these things. Stir our hearts, we pray, Lord, that we may love you more. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.